we turn to what has got to be one of the stranger stories in the Old Testament. It's found in Genesis chapter 22, uh, and we, we come to a place, uh, uh, it comes on the heels of God has now fulfilled his promise to Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, that they would have a child of promise, and his name is Isaac. And you know the story, there was another kid that was born about 12 years before that to a handmaid uh, named Hagar, and uh, This story comes on the heels of Hagar and Ishmael being pushed out of the house and they're pushed away from them. God says he's going to take care of them and provide for them. But we find ourselves in this story where Abraham's lineage is going to be propagated. His son is going to be able to uh, carry on the line of his genetics through the promise of God. And they have settled a a treaty with a guy named Abimelech so that they can, or an office named Abimelech possibly, where they can have a place to live down in Beersheba, which is south of uh, Bethlehem. And they've got everything settled. And into that situation, God speaks. You know, you get everything kind of ordered out and straightened out, and you got your life going in the way you think you want it to go, and everything's going well, and then God steps in and says, hey, Hey, I got something for you. And you think, oh my goodness, what's he going to do? And Abraham finds out real quickly what it is. Look at verses 1 and 2. After these things, those things we just talked about, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now you understand, Ishmael was not considered of the promise of God, so he's not called son. This is your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, if you just skimmed that passage, you're probably going, okay, what's the problem? Hello, anybody read that close enough to catch what's about to happen? If God's promise, a command is carried out, he's going to be offered as a what? A burnt offering. You've got to be kidding me. God would never ask us to take our children and burn them on an altar somewhere, would, would he? Sometimes we want to, right? But God's never told us to, so we don't go do that. And we kind of look at it and go, this story, and go, can this be real? But into this moment, God steps with this massive testing of faith. Will Abraham follow God's call for his life? God is testing Abraham's faith. Will he be found faithful in doing what God's told him to do? And what happens here is something that no parent would ever want to hear, ever want to consider, ever want to contemplate, seriously at least, a call from Almighty God to release their child in such a way. Can you imagine? Moms, dads, God, you wake up one day and God says, Hey! Here's what I want you to do. And you go, what? you got to be kidding me. Right? That's how we would react. That's how I would react. Yet God's command to Abraham is very clear. Take your son of promise, hand to the land, head to the land of Moriah, and you're going to offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain I'm going to show you. There's no way to sugarcoat this. God is calling him to sacrifice literally his child. Wow. Let that gravity sink in a second. Can you imagine being asked by God to do that? This doesn't make sense. No one in their right mind would have come up with this plan. And Abraham says, okay, God, his son's going to be the one to inherit the line. He's going to be the one to establish the lineage. He's going to be, but you're going to tell me to do what? And And remember, Abraham is not a young guy at this point. He's over 100 years old. Chances of another child coming are pretty slim. Sarah's no spring chicken either. No chance of a child unless God intervenes. So what do you do? Look at verse 3. So Abraham 
rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So Abraham takes the faith step. Now, you need to catch that. He's been told to do something that makes no sense from a human standpoint. Take and t- sacrifice your child. But Abraham gets up not, not at 10 o'clock the next day. He gets up what? Early. He says, we're going to go do this. We're going to take care of this. And God is calling me to do this. So we don't have to wait long for his response. He rises. He goes. And he's heard from God what to do. Now it's up to him to do what? Take the step. Boy, that's an application waiting to happen in a few moments. But without delay, he rises. He travels by saddling his donkey. He grabs grabs two guys from his traveling companions. And he says, son, we're going on a trip. Where are we going? We're going to Moriah. Okay. What are we going to do? We're going to sacrifice. Okay. And they set off on the journey. Now, Moriah is uh, the ancient name for the land that is centered right around what is today Jerusalem. So you need to catch that as a tie into New Testament. We're not going to spend much time on it, but I want you to catch that. It's land filled with high hills. They would call them mountains. You and I would call it the Texas Hill Country, okay? It's not like the Front Range of the Rockies. It's just really high hills. But when you go from walking in the desert to those hills, it feels like mountains. So it's a, it's a relational thing. And they head up that way, and they travel about 60, maybe 65 miles with a donkey and maybe on foot north into the hills of Moriah to get to this place. So, verse 4 and 6 and 8. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his two men, the two young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, to carry. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, I'm confused. He doesn't say that, but that's the sense you get from the passage. Uh, Here I am, my son, he said. Behold the fire and wood, but where... Oh, where has the little lamb gone? Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, traveling three days, they look up and they see the place. And Abraham's heart must have been struggling. Can you imagine, dads, you've been told by God to take your only son, the one of promise, and you're going to take him and you're going to sacrifice him on this mountain. And you make the journey and you're on the way and you get up there and you go, oh my gosh, there it is. I've got to go there to fulfill God's call. I've got to go there and sacrifice my son. I've got to go there and do what I can't even begin to imagine doing. There's no way to soften this command. He's seen the place from a distance. So Abraham tells the young men, stay here. Isaac and I will go over there to the place. And their plan is to go worship. Now, understand, they weren't headed over to the First Baptist Church of Moriah, okay? They weren't going to go sing three or four songs and hear a three-point sermon or maybe a nine-point sermon for those of you who've been noticing lately. But they're going to worship the way they did. And the way they worshiped was... Oddly enough, to sacrifice an animal. You're going, ooh, different time, different setting. That's how they would worship. And so they're going over there, and Isaac is carrying the wood on his back. Abraham is carrying the fire. He's carrying the knife. They see the place, and then Isaac asks the best question of all. He says, hey, Daddy, we got fire and wood. Where's the lamb? 
Where's the lamb? And Abraham's response is simply this. God will provide. God will provide. See, Isaac understood the normal way to worship was to make a blood sacrifice. But it was painfully obvious there was no animal. What are they going to do? And God says, Abraham says, God will provide. He didn't know how God would provide. He didn't know what way it would happen. He says, but I know my God will provide in this moment. He will do what we need to have done. And so they walk to the mountain, to the high place. They get over there. And you come into verse 9. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there. Now you're going, so he built like steps to auditorium. No. He built a stone altar. You're going, Okay, the area around modern-day Jerusalem is very rocky, uh, and there's not a lot of natural trees there. That's why they carried their own wood with them, so they'd have wood for the fire. But they had plenty of stones. I want to draw your thought to this. Abraham built the altar. Do you think he built it by himself? No son would sit there and go, good luck, Dad. They'd step up and do what? They'd help. So they began to build this altar, and it's a big altar. If you're going to put a human on that, it's got to be bigger than just a little altar. It's got to be a large altar. And then he does something that just blows our minds. He laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He built this altar. His son helps him build an altar. They lay the wood on top. And then what happens next completely boggles my mind. And I had to do some study on the, on the language here. I'm not a Hebrew expert. Well, let me confess. I'm not a Greek expert, but I studied Greek. I didn't study as much Hebrew, so I have to really rely on commentators and, 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 and different resources to get in there. But I got to study on the words that are used in this passage because I think it helps us understand what's going on. We tend to have an image of Isaac as being a little boy, right? Maybe a six-year-old, an eight-year-old. The text says he was a young man. Now, let's be Jewish for a minute. You don't become a man until you're what? Till you go through a bar mitzvah service at about age 13 or 12, depending on the, the, the context. And then, do you know how long you're a young man in Jewish culture? Until you're 30. You don't become a man until you're 30. That's one of the reasons Jesus' ministry publicly didn't really start until he was 30, because he was then a man of the culture. You're thinking, weird. They married younger, but then they stayed younger longer, and then they got old faster when they turned 30. Different culture, right? And so look into the story with me. So here we're understanding that he is a young man. He is at least 12. He's possibly 29. Let that one sink in for a second. And it's daddy and son building an altar by themselves. And then he says, it's now time for you to get on the altar. Now, I'm smart enough to know that a guy in his hundreds would probably be out strengthened and outran by a guy in his teens or 20s. Y'all with me? And so what happens here is just absolutely amazing. Isaac submits to this moment willingly. Wow. When I came across that this week, it just kind of blew me away. Here you got a picture of a sacrifice ordered by God, but also a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of the Son of God centuries later, willingly laying his life down. For us, Isaac submits willingly. He's on the altar. In your mind, see the picture. Father and son alone on the mountain. Son laying on a stone, altar bound. The tension is high. 
What would happen? Look at verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife, and there is no better translation than this exact word, slaughter his son. Wow. We tell this to children at Bible school, in Sunday school. Isn't that scary? But there's a promise in here. Stay with me. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. There's a foreshadowing of Jesus in this passage. Don't miss it, though we're not going to focus on it. But I want you to see what happens here. Everything that has been done, could be done, has been done. They are down to the moment of truth, if you will. The son is on the altar that they've just finished building. He is bound on that altar. Abraham has pulled his knife and is about to do what he doesn't want to do, I'm sure, as a dad. And yet God has said, do this. And an angel speaks. Boy, what a wonderful sound that must have been, right? God says through the angel, stop. What God was doing here was testing Abraham's resolve to be obedient to his call. And God provides what he needs, not too soon, not too late, but right on time. God tenderly provides. A man who had made his share of mistakes up to this point stands with a knife drawn about to take his son's life. And God intervenes, providing a substitutionary atonement for the moment. He sees the ram. And God has tenderly provided an alternative sacrifice to his son. What a story, huh? You think, man, this is crazy. God provided a supernatural provision so that Isaac didn't have to die. From that point forward, they call this place, the Lord will provide. By the way, that's Hebrew, raw, 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 raw. Sounds like a football cheer, doesn't it? Raw, 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 raw. Maybe you'll remember that one, right? And what it means is this. He's the God to see. Look what he's going to do. Look what he did. Look what he provided. And God showed out in that moment to provide faithfulness from God's, from Abraham's faithfulness to provide what he needed. And in that place, God would be seen as the provider. Oh, I love this foreshadowing of the crucifixion of Jesus centuries later. He would provide on that same hill the sacrifice that we needed. And then God does something interesting. Look at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. It's a busy day. Monumental day. You get to hear from heaven twice. He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. God testifies to his blessing. 
See, since God had called Abraham to do this, he had to be faithful. And since he had not been willing to withhold his son from the Lord, the Lord says, I will bless you. I will give you a blessing of multiplicity, multiplying your family and your line. And through you shall come a blessing to the whole earth. Let me just remind you, he's talking about Jesus here, though he doesn't say it. And from his lineage would come the Son of God, the Messiah, who would say, be on that same hill, sacrificed, willingly laying his life down so we could have new life. And all this would occur because of his faithfulness at Mount Moriah. And they went on with life from there. So what do you do with this? Three quick things. Somebody asked me this morning, you know, we're supposed to have three points in a poem, but have a sermon. And I said, you know what? Sometimes the story don't fit. Sorry, doesn't fit. Excuse me. But also, if you want me to finish quick, give me more points because I go faster. All right. So what do we do with this? Three quick thoughts. Number one, I want to tell you, this is tes- this, I'm, testi- I'm testifying of personal experience, but I'm also telling you what has happened in this story. God's commands don't always make sense. We think, well, God has to make perfect sense. I have to fully understand and get it before I can do it. No, the commands of God often, and I would almost say always, don't make sense to us as humans. We just don't get it. I would suggest they don't make sense. Recall, God's ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. His moving is not like our moving. He's different from us. Praise God. He's not like us. Because that makes him God, y'all. It makes him different than us. Therefore, when our lives intersect with the divine, we'll often have a logic disconnect here because we go, but I think it should be this way, but I think it should happen this way, but I think we should, but God's God. (laughs) Amen. He's God. Consider the life of Abraham, not just in our passage, but all along. Do you remember how he started out? He was living in the Ur of the Chaldees. You're going, where in the tarnation is the Ur of the Chaldees? That's in what's today uh, Iraq, in that area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. He was living over there, and God said, i got a plan for you. And he said, oh, okay, let's go. And he left from there and traveled into the Promised Land, coming in in the northern part of the country, up above the Sea of Galilee. And he traveled from north to south, stopping to worship along the way, which meant he did build altars, and he did sacrifice animals along the way, and he worshiped God. And then he went down to Egypt and got himself in trouble down there. Oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Weird? Listen, obedience to the calling of God often will not make sense in the moment. You think, what are you doing? But in the sweet by and by, it makes sense. It's as if we have to have hindsight to see how God's at work. We want to look ahead and go, okay, I want to understand it before you do it. Often we have to take the step and get there and go, oh, this is what you're doing. It's easier for us to see where God has taken us than where he's taking us often. So I think the call on our lives is pretty straightforward. To hear his commands. To obey those commands. And to take step-by-step faith walks. Even when it makes absolutely no sense to us in our minds. I'm reminded of the words of the beloved disciple John when he spoke to the church in Asia Minor about this. He said this, By this we know that we love the children of God. How? When we love God and obey His commands. 
For this is the love of God that we keep his commands and his commands aren't burdensome. I, I think we, we really need to grasp the thought that when we're doing what God calls us to do, life is actually quite enjoyable, even if we don't understand what's going on. Because it's where God has us. I think John's talking way more than just the Ten Commandments when he wrote these words. He's talking about the Big Ten, yes. But he's talking about when God lays on our heart, this is what I need you to do. And that thought doesn't conflict with his word. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I think God's calling me to to do this. And you hear the thought and you're going, "You, you know, God's word speaks specifically against that. And you say God's calling you to do that. That can't be true. God will never call you to do something that's contrary to his word. But when he calls you to do something that isn't contrary to his word, it's take the step. Faith steps are what takes us forward. The story of Abraham, he used an angel to inform but not explain the meaning. He informed but didn't explain. Huh. If you're waiting for the commands of God to make sense, good luck. Because often they won't. Often they won't. Number two. God's provisioning is always timely. God's provisioning is always on time. We think, well, I've got to have everything ready and done and lined up and ready to go before I go and before I do. No, we don't. Abraham took a journey of about 60 miles without a lamb, without a sacrifice, because God said go. All too often, we want to get our ducks in a row, get everything all laid out, and then we'll take the next step. And I've got to tell you, sometimes when we're doing all that preparation, we actually miss what God has for us in the moment. Because we're worried about all this stuff over here when he said, just follow me. I can't tell you how many times I've been guilty of that in my life. Because I'm a little organized in life. I like all the details laid out. I want to know how we're going to cover all the expenses before we go. I want to know how many miles it is between each place. I want to know where we're going to stop. I want to know how many bathrooms are at that restroom. I'm not quite that bad. But you get the point. We say, God, give me the detailed itinerary, then I'll go. And sometimes he says, let's just go. And I'll provide for you as we go. His call is plain to those of us who understand that He's calling us and we're listening. We've experienced Him truthfully speak, us, speak that way. His call is also plain to those who follow Him. Jeremiah wrote in his Lamentations, he said this, The Lord is good to those... If you don't mind writing in your Bible, write, underline those next four words. Who, what, wait, wait. I mean, y'all, y'all good at waiting? And one of the things about modern society is we don't wait hardly for anything anymore, do we? We want it now. Wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should what? Wait. How? Quietly. Okay, God. God's goodness is shared, I think, most liberally on those who wait on him. And the idea behind the word translated wait here in Lamentations is not inaction. Sometimes we think waiting means I don't do anything. That's not really the thought here in the Hebrew. It's this. It's anticipating that God will do something. So you can sit and wait and do nothing, or you can wait expecting God. That's the thought here. That's the calling. 
But if you're willing to take the steps of faith he's called you to take, then what will happen is you'll see God move in a mighty way. You may not have a ram caught in the thicket for you, but he'll provide in his time. And one more thought, number three. Living by faith always requires action. You ever taken standardized testing where they say they put the word always in there, it means it's wrong? i got to tell you, this is the truth. Living by faith always requires us to do something. To take a step somehow. To surrender something. To give away something. It's always easy to say, oh, I'm living by faith. When you're doing nothing. I'm just sitting here living by faith. I'm doing nothing. I got to tell you, I don't think that's biblical faith. Biblical faith is saying, God, I'm going to do what you have for me in this moment. I'm going to take the steps. You know, I can stand here and tell you I'm going to lose weight. But you know what I got to do to lose weight? I got to do something. I got to shut my mouth, right, at dinner time. How about this one? I'm going to save money. That means you got to turn off the spending somewhere, don't you? How about this one? I'm going to further my education. How are you going to get that? Well, I'm just going to sit here and wait until God just shows me the degree. I hadn't found that one to work yet, have you all? It takes work. Whatever it is, until I take the concrete step to make it the changes necessary to come to pass, it's just a bunch of hot air. Faith requires action, taking steps. But take steps forward. For Abraham was taking his son to the Mount Moriah and make a sacrifice without a lamb. For you and me, it's probably something else, probably a thousand other things. The writer of Hebrews spoke of this when he said this, And without faith, without faith, without what? Faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what he's talking about here. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and he rewards those who seek him. We have a responsibility to be people who walk by faith. And if we're going to experience the greatest life possible, we have to walk by faith. Large things, little things, everything. And of course, the first step of faith is trusting Him in salvation. Saying, God, I'm going to give my life to you. You know, the scariest thing is just to give your life to Christ, isn't it? Somebody say, no, it wasn't scary. Well, yeah, because you're on the other side of the equation. But stand on this side over here, you go, I don't know if I can... Uh, uh. I don't know, what if, what if he sends me as a missionary to China? There's worse things in life, aren't there? He might send you to your neighbor. That's scarier. The call this morning is simple. If you've never trusted him, today's the day to do it. Don't put it off. We'd love to pray with you at the end of the service. Maybe you're here today and you've, you have that relationship, but you're not connected at a church. You're not plugged in officially. You, you need to do that. You go, oh, it doesn't matter if I'm a member. Oh, I think it does. It's accountability by connecting to a local body of believers. You get to get frustrated with us like we get frustrated with us already. You know, we love each other through it because we've got that commitment, right? It's kind of like getting married. A lot of fun. A lot of work, but a lot of blessings too, right? That's what he calls us to. So we're going to give you an opportunity to respond this morning, and we're going to do that right after I pray. Father God, we pray right now for those in this room who need to make some kind of decision that's public. We pray that you give them that opportunity to just step out in faith. Take that step. They may not know where it's going to go. They don't know what's going to happen. But God, you do, and we pray your hand in that moment. 
Father, for others, it may just be a prayer of in their seat saying, God, I trust you with my life, and I'm going to learn to walk by faith better. I'm going to take those steps. So, Father, we pray right now for those who have different decisions they need to make in this moment. Father, this really isn't about singing. It's about choosing. And I pray that you'd help us to do that. We pray your blessing on these moments in Jesus' name.